few weeks ago, I was at my B-Body Positive Pen GBM, leading a discussion about the struggle of intuitive eating in college. We usually talk a lot about the social pressures of the dining hall and the overwhelming amount of food choices, but this conversation landed on the cards they have placed in front of every food item that show the calorie count. A lot of people expressed strong feelings about the calorie information being shoved in their faces as they were trying to practice intuitive eating, specifically avoiding counting calories, to the point that we decided to email the Penn Dining Hall director to express our concerns. It was when he responded that we learned that there wasn't really anything that could be done because nutrition labeling is actually part of federal law, as it's included in the ACA. What is the purpose of nutrition labeling? Why is it part of the Affordable Care Act? And how did it get there? My name is Audrey Singer, and I'm here today with Lila Rose to unpack nutrition labeling in the ACA. The ACA, Obama's legacy legislation, was passed in 2010 and addressed a number of accessibility issues in healthcare. One clause that gets very little attention is the brief section on nutrition labeling. Section 4205 of the ACA requires restaurants with more than 20 locations display calorie counts of each food item on their menus. This short piece of the ACA is part of the section on prevention and wellness and is meant to address the obesity epidemic in the United States and improve general population health through nutritional nudging. Theoretically, consumers will make healthier decisions for themselves if they are confronted with nutritional information. The information requirements are pretty comprehensive. The display has to include calorie counts and standard nutrition info like carbs, fats, sodium, etc. These values have to be displayed clearly and prominently and must be accompanied by a baseline daily calorie value to help consumers contextualize the portion of their daily calories the given food item would be. But the ACA was about insurance coverage and accessibility. How does nutrition labeling fit into all of this? Well, the ACA also has a major focus on prevention and cost reduction. Nutrition labeling is a response to the medical context of rising obesity and chronic disease rates, but it really only makes sense in the political context of nudging and the sociocultural context of extreme diet culture in the 90s. Oh, interesting. Tell me more. Medically, there are some very clear, concerning health trends going on at this time. We've got obesity rates climbing, cardiovascular health on the decline, and chronic disease rates increasing, resulting in worsening health across populations and increased healthcare costs. Poor nutrition is a comorbidity to all health conditions. I actually came across an article that estimated the economic cost of obesity, and in 2008, it was $147 billion. That's 10% of all medical spending that year. Wow, that's a lot. They seem like valid concerns. The country's health is getting worse, and expenditures are getting exponentially higher every year. It makes sense for the government to address the chronic conditions that worsen health cost a lot and or comorbidities. Yes, absolutely. But this perspective really just scrapes the surface of why the ACA went with nutrition labeling over other interventions as a solution to the obesity epidemic, and why we understand obesity as an epidemic in the first place. We need to look at the history of food regulation and nutrition to understand this approach. Politically, the U.S. has gradually increased regulations on food and drugs since the establishment of the FDA. Government interventions for nutrition and health have consistently taken a nudging approach in which the government requires certain information so that consumers can make informed decisions about the things they consume. Legislation around nutrition has also institutionalized specific quantifications of health and defined good and bad foods. 
Nudging is a public health intervention by which institutions promote information or create consequences to encourage certain behaviors. What exactly is nudging? Great question. Nudging is a public health intervention by which institutions promote information or create consequences to encourage certain behaviors. So for instance, the soda tax in Philadelphia is a way to nudge people away from drinking soda. This section of the ACA requires nutritional information for the purpose of nudging the American public toward healthier decisions using numeric calorie counts. The U.S. government has been pretty consistent in this approach regarding nutrition, starting with the establishment of the FDA all the way to the Nutrition Labeling and Education Act of 1990. That piece of legislation required labels on foods sold in grocery stores. It's very specific in the information requirements, insisting that individual Americans are given every last bit of information and context to make the most informed decision about their food intake possible. But the approach is still hands-off, exactly like the ACA. There are no consequences for choosing the 1,000-calorie Big Mac, aside from the guilt of knowing that the government would have preferred for you to order a salad. Wow, that's so true. I don't always notice it, but I do feel guilty when I don't order the lowest calorie option on the menu. Past policies and statements from government officials have institutionalized ideas about food, weight, and health. A report from the Surgeon General in 1979 called Healthy People did a great job of this, recommending nutritional intake that aligned with diet trends of the time. The report recommended lower intake of saturated fat, cholesterol, salt, sugar, increased intake of complex carbs, and consumption of only enough energy to maintain desirable body weight. We have government voices telling us what to eat, institutionalizing diet fads, and labeling foods as good or bad foods. As these policies get more specific, they get closer and closer to equating low weight with good health. There's an interesting legitimacy this brings to dieting and weight loss and thin body standards, given that it's coming from the Surgeon General. Exactly, which leads me to the larger, more important context of how Section 4205 of the ACA came to be. The growing diet culture in the 1990s, which contributed to a societal understanding of thinness as healthy, fear of fatness, and consensus that calorie counting was a solution for a healthier population. Liz Brody wrote an excellent piece in the LA Times that unpacks this history. As the Industrial Revolution proceeded, female figures were supposed to be efficient, economical, balanced, and sleek as a Wright Brothers airplane, she writes. The first extreme dietitian, Dr. Lulu Hunt Peters, told her readers in the 20s that they should be thinking of every piece of food in terms of its calories. The first fad diets promoting starvation techniques took off in the 1930s, with the first liquid fast interestingly emerging after the stock market crash of 1929. The popularity of TV in the 1950s worsened comparisons to Hollywood bodies and set up an age of caloric anxiety, as Sayed puts it. Up through the 1990s, dieting has been an issue of control in a changing society and an ineffective way to make one's body as small as possible, all under the guise of health. Oh, wow. JFK even played a role in the 50s by promoting weight loss for Americans, specifically emphasizing fitness as a way for Americans to contribute to their country in times of war. Here we see clear evidence that the U.S. as an institution treats dieting and weight loss opportunities as a matter of personal choice and operates based on the assumptions that all groups have the same ability to lose weight. In her excellent article called Fat America, Shessler Jandro explains that these individuals, quote, are posited as victims of self-induced circumstance rather than as victims of a society that hinders their ability to succeed. And 90s diet culture went beyond government messages. I mean, these messages were everywhere. 
According to Brody in the 90s, four out of five Americans consumed low-cal, sugar-free, and reduced-fat food and beverages. An article in the New York Times, which was published in 92, gave some insight into what diet culture was like. Ivana Trump is quoted in the article and was described as having an emaciated appearance. She told reporters, it makes me feel powerful to be hungry. The article described the 90s as part of a 20-year reign of an anorexic aesthetic, and one of the psychiatrists quoted estimated that more than half of women between ages 10 and 30 had an eating disorder. I feel like the Kate Moss quote, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels, really defines the decade. That is spot on. Fat phobia and an intense fear of obesity, rooted in medicalization and utilitarianism, plagued the 1990s. Medicalization is when a non-medical issue becomes characterized as a medical issue, using terms like illness or epidemic in the case of obesity. Prior to these cultural changes, fatness was not seen as a medical concern. The medicalization of obesity has pitted body acceptance against health, as fatness is equated to unhealthiness. Medicalization of obesity also creates an implication that a cure exists, which has absolutely contributed to the stickiness of dieting, with everyone hoping the next diet will be their solution. Utilitarian ideas about obesity don't help either. Fatness is an indicator of a so-called failed citizen, as fat people tend not to be part of the dominant social class and are blamed for being less efficient workers, as is indicated by the sheer existence of a study on the productivity cost of obesity that I referenced earlier. This set of values reinstills the idea that one's value as a citizen is determined by one's appearance and the ability to restrict. The quantification of health is also a major problem here. As medicine standardized and numeric values became more ingrained in criterion definitions, weight became even more tied to health. The body mass index, BMI, is an inaccurate way to measure body health, yet it's the first thing medical professionals across every medical setting use to evaluate an individual's health. The life insurance industry even used height and weight tables to evaluate their beneficiaries. These numbers determine worthiness. Section 4205 of the ACA is shaped by each of these aspects of diet culture. It treats obesity as a strictly medical issue that can be cured by better nutrition choices on behalf of individuals. It encourages calorie counting and low-cal meal choices, perpetuating ideals of thinness and fat phobia. It treats weight as an accurate measure of someone's health and suggests that fat people are less worthy. It's clear from this look into the context that the authors of the ACA were focused on economic and productivity costs, the superficial medical problems, and simple solutions to complex public health crises. In my opinion, this aspect of the ACA is highly problematic and does very little to even address the problem it intends to fix. Nutrition labeling perpetuates the problems of diet culture, feeds into the fears of obesity, and promotes misperceptions of weight as health. Not to mention, going back to the anecdote I opened with, calorie counting can be extremely triggering to individuals struggling with eating disorders and can encourage restriction. It also neglects the deeper structural reasons why individuals may make certain food decisions. Fresh, nutrient-rich foods are more expensive than fast food options that are less nourishing. The targeting of fast food restaurants actually hurts the population of people who eat fast food regularly, low-income Americans, and blames them for America's health problems. It doesn't take into consideration food deserts, where entire neighborhoods don't even have access to grocery stores with fresh foods. This aspect of the ACA treats nutrition as a choice individuals make for themselves rather than a systemic issue of access. The strength of American individualism is not new. 
the government response to rising health concerns through nutrition labeling is part of a larger thread of the government burdening individuals with their health. Rather than requiring restaurants to offer healthy food options or preventing single menu items which exceed daily calorie limits, the government chose to require information so that individuals' decisions are their responsibility. The government consistently defers accountability for the health of the population to the individual rather than regulate for the sake of population health, all in the name of American individualism. The voluntary versus compulsory rhetoric is very prevalent in every conversation about U.S. healthcare, with voluntary options seen as positive, free, and allowing for individual choice, while compulsory options are seen as stifling, enforced, and generally more negative. During the Cold War, as anti-socialist rhetoric took off in the United States, healthcare reform was highly criticized for its compulsory elements. Historian Colin Gordon explains that, quote, when the mind of man has been so conditioned by socialist propaganda that he will surrender to government the right to make decisions concerning his health care, he has been readied for the yoke of totalitarianism. America has been a proud supporter of voluntary decisions since this time when fears of socialism planted their seeds in the country. Also, lots of American health policy is structured as opt-in rather than opt-out, pushing responsibility to the individual to take advantage of the benefits the government offers. For instance, when Social Security was first established, all senior citizens aged 65 and over were eligible to receive Medicare Part B benefits, but approximately 700,000 eligible seniors failed to sign up for coverage in the program's first year, despite being eligible, according to historian Julian Zelzer. Their opt-in system is Medicaid, which actually requires an application. These systems place undue burden on each individual to indicate they are opting in when it would be administratively easier to manage an opt-out system, and they put responsibility on individuals to stay informed about new policies and actually be able to opt in. Similarly, with Social Security, there was a strong focus on the individual through the lens of personal responsibility. Social Security in the 60s brought up plenty of contentious debates. Ultimately, in 96, President Clinton signed the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act, enacting reforms on welfare. Here we have explicit language about individualism and the importance of individual choices to American values. Speaking on the act, Clinton said, It gives states the capacity to create jobs by taking money now used for welfare checks and giving it to employers as subsidies, as incentives to hire people. It really drives home the idea that people need to work to be seen as worthy and take responsibility for their own health by contributing to society in a productive way. This idea is really consistent in American history, putting responsibility on individuals to earn their coverage themselves by working and placing the blame on individuals when they face health problems. And we see the trend continue with nutrition labeling. Nutrition labels create opportunity for voluntary decisions rather than mandatory changes for restaurant offerings and selection options. The government regulates the restaurant industry as little as possible, and when people make unhealthy choices, the responsibility is on them. Pretty messed up, if you ask me. This has been a deep dive into the ACA with Audrey Singer. Thanks for listening.